This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This week, we're telling the story of Air New Zealand Flight 901. Thanks for listening. And we're good. So it's, it is not raining at all where I am. No rain, no lightning, nothing. It it has been lightning for an hour where I am. A full hour. We live nine miles apart. (laughs) Yes. It makes no sense. It doesn't. It it makes no sense. Like the fact that you can't even see the lightning. Nothing. Nothing. I'm looking out the window right now. It's so bizarre. And I will... I will close the curtain to protect <laughs> from the the bad sound waves. I don't know. I don't. I don't, yeah. I don't get it. But we try. Um, we do try. We do try. We do. I um. So we are doing a very requested episode today, and uh, this one, actually, the first person who told me about this flight was our dearest darling Tim from FS Mania on. Oh youtube and then we've got another request from it or for it but um lisa our good bud uh sent like not just uh, didn't just ask for this flight but also sent some like cool documentaries about it and things like that so i'm really excited to yeah talk about this so uh we're telling the story of air new zealand flight 901 which um does that ring any bells for you mariah just for clarity no <laughs> okay. no no bells yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess this is um this was a very 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 major story in new zealand um we're going back to november of 1979 baby so all right smoking galore yeah. i don't know what the smoking culture is like then or now in new zealand but Right. I am sure that people were smoking on this yeah. plane. And, some people uh, were definitely smoking, at least. Some people were definitely smoking. They definitely gave you a little box of yeah. smokes for the flight. And uh, the flight is a very, very, very cool flight. The flight is from Auckland, New Zealand, over Antarctica Ooh. for sightseeing. So, like, Ooh. look at just look at it like you don't touch down you just fly for like hours over over wow. antarctica and then fly back i want to do that <laughs> and i want to do it so badly it's so cool yeah. it's so so cool that it's an amazing. amazing yeah they started air new zealand started doing this route sorry i don't even know if route is like the perfect word they started doing this flight because the purpose of it is the flight not the destination right? right they um started doing it in 1977 so it's like fairly new it's like 
very, very popular. They do it um, once a week. I think once a week or every two weeks, all of the dates were on the same day and were like like a week apart like when i was looking so it's not a flight they do you know every day of the week or five times a week it is like a a special event flight and uh i'm sure they only do it seasonally you know things like that so uh down in the southern hemisphere november is springtime instead of fall and uh like late late spring i guess I guess depending on where you how far south you are, but right, right. Um, yeah. So the route is flying from Auckland over Antarctica, then back to for hours, for hours. Yeah. And I did not. I'm just going to be honest. I don't look at things in reference to Antarctica that often. Mm. So when I was looking at it, I was like, oh wow, yeah, New Zealand is right there right it's right there it's yeah so close. so close yeah so close uh and so you fly like over antarctica for hours for so long that when you come back they actually land in christchurch new zealand so they can refuel and switch out the crew the the pilots mm-hmm. and uh give them a break and then fly the one hour like from christchurch to auckland so yeah. they yeah, just very, very cool. They fly a DC-10, which makes it that much cooler. We love we love a DC-10. Trijet. Yeah, it's got the, the cool third engine on the tail. Super cool, like powerful, yeah. beautiful plane. And uh, they also like just like little stuff. Like they only uh, sell tickets up to 85% capacity for the aircraft so that they can keep they they would leave the center rows like the center uh not the center seats in each row but the center rows empty so that passengers could like stand up and walk around and like go from one side of the plane to the other so that they could like look out the windows and get a better view depending on what was on the right or the left and to me somehow it keeps getting cooler because Sir Edmund Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, the the maybe probably officially maybe first person along with uh uh Tengzing uh Norgay to summit Mount Everest. Right. This like literal like old school explorer dude is the the guide. He would fly wow. with yeah, he would fly with the passengers to like cuz he also like did expeditions to the North Pole and all this cool stuff. Right. And so he's like, "I know this land. I will point out things to you." Right. So cool. And it's wow. him, it's Sir Edmund Hillary, the man, like the man himself, and sometimes he would have like friends and other explorers like the the guides they had were not like just i don't know like the guide on the on the apple like double decker buses around new york city right the guide is the guides are like these incredibly interesting like people would go to an event just to meet sir edward sir edmund hillary rather like you just go you would go to an event just to meet him you don't even need the plane you don't even need any of it right i would go to an event in his kind of retirement years right didn't he climb it at first in the 50s yeah so he's he's 40 he's he's 40 almost on the dot so he's yeah he's but he's 
in how can I say this? Like he still proceeded to do more stuff in his life. And, you know, he actually, it's interesting. He started a, um, a Nepalese charity that Mm. like opened like a bunch of schools and stuff in Nepal and stuff like that, because, you know, where he had climbed Mount Everest and, uh, yeah, cool. cool guy. Yeah. So this is such a cool idea air yeah. new zealand everything about it is cool the plane is cool the guide is cool the route is cool it's so, so cool, cool. <laughs> so cool and uh they had uh the, the whole thing took the entire day like you left at 7 a.m you got back at 9 p.m it's the entire day you're yeah. spending almost the whole thing in the air just super just a, an event and it cost like $300 NZ at the time, like whatever, in like New Zealand dollar, which I heard very disparate numbers for how oh. that translates into money today. I yeah. don't know. And I guess you're converting currency and you're converting year, yeah, like, like adjusting for inflation. So I read everything from that trans, like that ticket price translates to apparently anywhere from $1,000 to three grand. Okay. I, I so pricey. Know, but it was pricey. Either way, pricey. I mean, that, that can be pretty pricey. It's like it's a it's like a once in a lifetime thing. Yeah, you know totally, what I mean. So totally. it's like a really really cool event yeah, that you can experience. do. Yeah. So I yeah, just very cool. Good job, Air New Zealand. Super super cool. So in uh, they are you know training their pilots to do this right so on november 9th 1979 they had a like a training a briefing for dc-10 pilots who had never done that route before hadn't done the training yet but wanted to be eligible to do that route and like yeah if you're a pilot it's a long day of work i guess but it's so cool and and you're a if you're a DC-10 pilot for New Zealand, how many short flights do you do, right? right. Like, it's probably all long days. Right. You're far away. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we love the Kiwis. You guys are very far away, yeah. right? <laughs> so, um, they, on November 9th, 1979, they had uh, training for this very cool thing. Would you like to be eligible to do the coolest route ever? Pilots are like, why, yes, I would like to do that route. So, yes, train me. And uh, in... So the training was like a little, shall we say, maybe uh, it it was like a video. You watched a video (laughs) and they gave you some like they gave you like the flight plan and stuff. Right. It wasn't like super crazy training. But again, they're not teaching you or I how to do this route. They're teaching pilots Pilots, who already fly this aircraft the specifics of this particular route right and the particular considerations because obviously like you're flying over water for almost all of it then for the part where you're not over water you're over antarctica so special considerations yeah and uh the yeah so they you know did this little training super cool super exciting Plus, it's the future, baby. It's 1979. (laughs) The United Auto Workers are on strike and the whole 
Iran hostage crisis thing. Yeah. Like, it's the future, baby. A lot's yeah. happening. And that means the planes have computers. Isn't it so cool? Love computers on planes. Uh, they they have computers which is very helpful very nice yeah. very sleek very modern um so modern so the route that they're being trained on in this training the route that they had to get clearance for obviously from their like civil aviation group like right they the route was established in 1977 when they first wanted to start this route Mm -hmm. um the route that they had approved the one that they had sent to their own like kiwi civil aviation board and the one they had also sent to the uh u.s because the like if you draw a straight line from new zealand straight down to antarctica that part of antarctica is called um like mcmurdo bay and there's mcmurdo base there and it's not a military base because there's no military action allowed in antarctica but um it's like a research base where scientists go and you know study penguins and polar bears or not polar bears penguins and seals and (laughs) little fishes and stuff right so that route that was approved by new zealand and by whoever makes the approval for mcmurdo base that route brought them straight over mount erebus so mount erebus is one of the volcanoes on on antarctica and mount erebus is the second tallest one erebus i guess cold weather makes people want to name things erebus because like erebus is the name of one of those ships that got horribly stuck in the north pole you know what i'm talking about anyway like the the terror in the the terror in the Erebus, right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so Mount Erebus, spooky name for scary stuff in yeah. the cold. It's, you know, a big, huge, tall volcano that's uh, like very, like right there at the beginning. Like if straight line down, it's right there. And the original route that they had approval for brought them over Mount Erebus. So Mount Erebus is uh, like 20. 12 or 13,000 feet tall and the route had them going over it over 16,000 feet mm. flying over it. Uh now when that route was approved and then somebody took that route written on paper and booped it into the Air New Zealand computer they made a typo. Like, in 1977, they right. made a typo. Okay. And that typo changed the route. So a typo in the coordinates, entering the coordinates, they basically, there was a number, one of the coordinates was, like, 664, and they put 644. I'm not going to read the whole number, but, like, yeah. they it was a, a typo. And that changed the route. So the route now, instead of going over Mount Erebus flew 27 miles west of Mount Erebus. So Mount Erebus would be on your like left-hand side. You'd be, you'd be flying south and you would pass Mount Erebus on the on the side. Okay. So on the left side. Um so it's a mistake, but for 2 years no one 
noticed apparently like they just kept they just did the route as it was showing up on their computer nobody like realized there was a discrepancy and the thing is like so this is the route but it's a sightseeing trip over the Antarctic, right? So pilots, it's a little bit loose, maybe, right? Like they would yeah. fly low or like turn right or left to like show people different things. Or maybe there's like a bunch of penguins doing something cool or whatever, right? They, it's, they're not going to run into other planes. And there is an air traffic controller at McMurdo Base, so they can inform them what they're doing and keep them in the loop. And, and they have, they have, Sir Edmund right there Hills himself climbing Mount Everest going to the North Pole and now he's on your plane and he knows where he is like looking out the window so you've got like this incredible guide so people didn't notice maybe for a lot of reasons that there was a discrepancy in the route but probably also didn't notice because maybe they're not following the route exactly which isn't a sin it's just you're checking stuff out it's cool look around it's amazing right Right. it's cool for the pilots too you know what i mean this is cool for everyone so at that briefing though on november 9th 1979 two years after the typo was made uh one of the pilots who was at that training is good old captain leslie simpson and he's very conscientious and he was going to fly the next after the training he was the next pilot to do this route and fly to antarctica um he looked at the paper that they had given him with the like the the flight route that they had given him at the training and he looked at the computer and realized that there was a discrepancy, that it was literally off by 27 miles. It was way off. And he was like, uh, hey. And what he specifically observed was that, so the, there's a McMurdo waypoint, right, which is uh, like when they're programming the flight route, right, they're, there's all of the waypoints, and at the McMurdo waypoint, that should line up with the McMurdo beacon that's sending out a message to tell you, like, this is where I am, right? right. But again, 27 miles apart, not at the same place. Yeah. So he reported it to New Zealand, to Air New Zealand and was like, um, hey, guys, this is wrong. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's wrong. It's just definitely, definitely wrong. So Air New Zealand changed the coordinates of McMurdo Waypoint to match the location of the beacon in their computers. Okay. Didn't change everything else, just changed that one thing that he had noticed. And at 1.40 a.m. on November 29th, uh, November 28th, rather, 1979, they changed it on the aircraft that was going to fly that route in a few hours. It was going to take off at 7 a.m. on November 28th. So at 1.40 a.m., they boop-booped to fix it in the computer mm-hmm. of the aircraft. So they faxed the flight plan to the McMurdo air traffic control, because that's part of flying, right? They, all of those flight plans, I don't know if anybody, if you've ever been sitting 
in the gate area and seeing, you know, some other plane is leaving and you hear the like chunk, 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 like sound of a very old printer printing yeah. out this super long paper. That's the flight plan that a paper physical flight plan that every single gate agent hands to every single pilot before they take off. And if they need to make changes to it or anything, they need approval ahead of time and they need it to be you know reflected there and the all of those flight plans are sent to air traffic control ahead of time right like it's it's hours before so all of that early paperwork is sent out before anybody's taking off and so they needed to there's been a they have to send in the flight plan to McMurdo air traffic control before this plane takes off at 7 a.m and they fax it to them but instead of putting the coordinates for McMurdo base, which would be the normal thing to do, yeah. they just like 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 back 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 like erased the coordinates and just wrote McMurdo and nothing else. They didn't put the coordinates because so basically they obfuscated, hid the fact that they had changed anything it looked like the same thing mm. that it always was right because right. it, it so not ideal not what you're supposed to do right so on the morning as the sun is coming up on november 28th 1979 we've got uh flight going to Antarctica and we've got Captain Jim Collins First Officer Greg the flight engineer's name is Gordon and for Jim and Greg they were at that training with Leslie on November 9th and they're doing this flight for the first time. Both of them are doing the Antarctica route for the first time ever. They are psyched because it's awesome and they uh, are uh conscientious like jim had the brought the flight plan he knew he was going to be on this flight and he had you know like read over it the night before he'd been studying it making notes all this stuff like uh greg the first officer had been doing the same thing gordon the flight engineer had done this route one time prior so the flight engineer is you know at a vantage point in the cockpit where he's not uh you know right up looking out the out the you know window and everything he's looking at his panel but still he'd done it once before just like to do it again it's very cool uh the flight plan because it had changed and captain jim had studied the original flight plan that had them going west of mount erebus that is the one that he had studied Mm. the printout that was handed to him on that morning because of the change they had made had them going over Mount Erebus the original approved flight plan that was what he was handed Mm. but nobody pointed out that it's different nobody told him nobody explained nothing right they handed him that one yeah no one said this is different from the one that you got last or two weeks ago they loaded up uh, 237 passengers. There's like the other crew. There's flight attendants. Everybody's getting on the the plane. So there's 257 people on board. Uh, 
our dearest darling, Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, can't do it this time. So his uh, good buddy and fellow explorer who like went to the North Pole with him, Peter, is taking the, his place. Peter Mulgrew, he's like also amazing, right? Just yeah. great guy. Very exciting. Tons of experience in the Antarctic. So he is the guide for today. And uh, they take off at 7 a.m. And uh, head for the bottom of the world in the most literal sense. This is obviously a time where there's like no GPS. So they are, you know, using their INS system, meaning your plane knows where it is because it knows where it started. Mm. And then it is measuring how far it is from there. So that's how your plane knows where it is. They fly. It takes just a few hours to get from New Zealand to Antarctica. They fly uh, toward the Antarctic coast. And obviously, as they're flying, they're up, you know, high above the clouds, coasting way up in the sky over the ocean. Everybody's psyched. It's so cool. I can only imagine how, like, electric the whole thing would be, right? Like, the cockpit doors open because it's the 70s. Everybody's smoking. Everybody's drinking. Because it's, like, a luxury experience. So there's, like, meals and champagne and everything. And a cool explorer who, you know, whatever, lived in in the literal... Antarctic. So yeah. Yeah. I don't, that is the part that I'm the most excited about for some reason. I'm so sorry, but I just think it's so cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, they fly for a few hours to get to Antarctica. And uh, as they're getting closer and they're ready to start descending, they call McMurdo Air Traffic Control and uh, say, like, hey, we're starting to descend. Uh, we're coming in. Yeah. Like, uh, hey, How's the weather? Things like that. The controller tells them it's actually overcast and a little snowy. Uh, the clouds are actually all the way down to 2,000 feet. Oof, that's low. And they're like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. That sucks. Uh, Antarctica is the biggest desert in the world i think right mm. it they they have very 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 little precipitation like if you're going to antarctica you can kind of count on it not actually snowing when you're there but on this day it is snowing yeah and that snow is gonna proceed to you know be there for the rest of time if if we are lucky right yeah. and um it just uh, so it's actually snowing and there's a lot like thick cloud cover like all the way down uh, oh, it must have been beautiful, though. Yeah. snowing. Oof. So, technically, they are not supposed to fly around too low. Right. But it is Antarctica. And right now, they're over the ocean. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. And everybody, again, it's kind of a loosey-goosey route. Passengers take pictures like from all of the different cameras of all the previous flights passengers are taking pictures that are clearly taken from places that are like off the route or whatever they're just they there's discretion the pilots have the ability to do use their best judgment to try to give the best experience possible to the passengers uh air traffic calls them back and says okay so there are clear areas about 75 miles northwest but it's snowing pretty good here it's snowing yeah. it's snowing uh, greg 
the first officer comments like, ooh, like, so that's, so it's snowing right over Cape Bird, which is like where they're headed to fly around. It, if it's snowing and really low cloud cover, what are they going to be able to see? Right. You know, in all seriousness, how much sightseeing are they going to be able to do? Right. Air, traffic, uh, air traffic control calls them again and says, I can guide you in to 1,500 feet, 1,500 feet, once you're within 40 miles of us, because I have a radar here that covers 40 miles. So if you can get, you get within 40 miles of us, I can guide you all the way down to 1,500 feet below the clouds. You can yeah. take your pictures. Because the air traffic controller, God bless him, it, probably kind of a boring job to be the air traffic controller at yeah. this Antarctic base, right? right? So he's, the air traffic controller keeps calling him to yeah. be like, hey champ, I can help you. Like, I don't want to, I don't want, this is cool, people, humans yeah. flying around. Yeah. I got you. So, yeah, what a thoughtful air traffic controller, right? right? He's, he, he's trying to make a good experience for these <laughs> passengers too, you know? And so he calls them and says, you know, like, okay, hey, I got radar, I'll guide you in so you can get below the clouds. And the, as they're, he's calling them and as they're trying to communicate with them, the communication is kind of spotty. Like there's two radios on this aircraft, an HF and a VHF radio. And the main radio that they would normally use is spotty. It's just not, they're not getting great. It's like jumping out. It's like you're, you're in my phone calls, Mariah. <laughs> um, it's just breaking up. And yeah. uh, they notice that. And so uh, Greg, the first officer, starts to kind of like mess with the radio and like context calls air traffic control back using the um hf radio like the so they're going back and forth trying to figure that out they're getting closer and they're descending and jim actually sees a gap in the clouds right and it's kind of a big gap and he's thinking okay so i can fly down kind of like in a big looping spiral mm -hmm. right down using that gap because they need to keep it's not just that they don't want to go through the clouds they need to be able to see where they're going right. you know so i can see where i'm going if i stay within that gap and i can fly and get down below the clouds and then by then we'll be within 40 miles and they'll be able to see us on radar um the, the radar thing is dependent on their transponder in their plane working and the transponder is also a little weird it's spotty like they can see that it's not consistently sending out the signal and so they're starting to mess with that trying to figure that out um but they jim the captain heads for that gap calls air traffic control tells them like hey i'm in a gap and i'm gonna maintaining visual flight conditions and i'm you know getting on down trying to get lower um the pilots are struggling to do that they're struggling to maintain the visual flight rules they're they're trying to like stay within this gap and still be able to see but if you think about it this everything is just like gray white yeah. like the ocean is gray white yeah. the ice sheet is gray white the the actual antarctica is gray white the sky is gray white the the clouds are uh, like even if they're in a gap, there's not that much contrast between any of the given surfaces. 
but they're doing their best. Um, McMurdo Air Traffic Control is trying to contact them again and tr- because he's trying to get the connection to work with his radar. And but again, their their communication is spotty and they're switching between radios, trying to get a good connection and the transponder is spotty. So finally, air traffic control gets kind of a good connection and um, calls them and talks them through flying in like a loop where they can maintain their ability to see where they're going and talks them through different like descending altitudes so they can get lower as they try to get under the clouds so they do that route as they're descending and as they get below the clouds right they get down to where they are over the ocean they get down below the clouds and jim feels like okay we're good and he flips on the autopilot to go and like rejoin the flight path that's been programmed into the computer so they get down low punch in the the uh, computer to have them merge back from where they are now back onto the flight plan Below the clouds, they're starting to be able to see, and uh, passengers are, like, taking pictures out the windows, but they're still above 2,000 feet where the cloud cover totally ends, so they're still passing through clouds, and passing through the clouds is obviously, again, dangerous for the pilots because they need to see where they're going and not fun for the passengers. Pilots call air traffic control, and ask them if they can descend down to 2,000 feet, if they're in a good spot to descend. Uh, Peter Mulgrew, the great explorer and guide, comes into the cockpit, and uh, the pilots actually ask him if he can help them figure out where they are. Like, can he see any landmarks or anything that he recognizes out the window to help them orient themselves? And uh, the Peter's like, yeah, of course. Uh, Like, as soon as I see something I recognize, I'll tell you, right? Because Peter's done this route before, besides obviously going to Antarctica many times. And uh, he makes a, Peter makes a PA announcement and says, um, I can't see very much at the moment. Uh, I'll tell you as soon as I can. And we'll see something that gives me a clue as to where we are. He like makes that as an announcement to the passengers, just letting them, cause he's been hyping them up, right? Like yeah. letting them know, like we're getting there. We're going to see stuff soon. Um, Gordon, the flight engineer is getting that like creeped out feeling. Mm-hmm. And Gordon says, where is Erebus in re- relation to where we are now? And Peter says it's about 20, 25 miles to the left. Peter's been on this flight before. He's he's going off that, right? Right. Um, and Greg, the first officer, agrees. And uh, Gordon is like, yeah, I'm just, you know, trying to think about any terrain. And uh, Peter is like, but yeah, it's, it's to the left, meaning it's to the east. But Gordon is still... can't shake that feeling... And he says, I, I think that Erebus should actually be about where we are right now. Oof. And Peter says, kind of like, 
yeah, no, no. Well, no, I don't think so. I, I guess I'm not sure. Gordon is right. Because unbeknownst to anyone on that plane, the flight plan that's punched into this computer is supposed to bring them over Mount Erebus at 16,000 feet. The flight plan they studied had them going 27 miles to the west of Mount Erebus where they could fly at 2,000 feet. Because of the faulty flight plan, they are at 1,500 feet and flying straight for Mount Erebus. And everything is just gray-white. It's snowing, and the, the it, it's like whiteout conditions. It's not whiteout conditions the way maybe we use that phrase necessarily with driving, where it's just snowing so hard that you can't see anything. But it's the same effect, but everything around them is that color everything is the same same color the sky is the same color and the clouds being at 2,000 feet can look like the horizon right like the bottom of the clouds can trick your eye into thinking that's the horizon gordon cannot shake this feeling and gordon says i don't like this and the Ground proximity warning goes up. The whoop whoop pull up. Whoop whoop pull up. And Greg says the the first officer says like we're clear on our right like immediately. And Jim says like give me go around power full power all three engines. It's too late. It's too late. They they hit the mountain. Everyone is killed instantly. Gosh. Uh, It is the first crash ever for Air New Zealand. Yeah. It's obviously the first commercial plane crash in Antarctica. Gosh. And it's up at 1500 feet on right. a mountain that they had no idea Gordon knew which is the worst yeah. Gordon ugh Jeez. air traffic control tried to call them and didn't get an answer obviously he had never the air traffic controller had never connected the radar to the transponder for whatever reason the two just did not connect so he didn't have any of that data which would have helped them that would have shown the air traffic controller they were way off course when air traffic control can't get a hold of them he calls his supervising body he's an american it's the american base calls like his supervisors and calls the uh like an air new zealand the airline and says that he's lost contact with them and uh the u.s sends like uh like navy 
ships, I guess, are off the coast and they send them down there to try to send helicopters or planes out to look. And Air New Zealand is scrambling. They call their aviation authority. There's nothing they can do from where they are, but they're, you know, scrambling and nobody knows what happened, right? right? Nobody knows. It's just, they just haven't heard anything. They just haven't heard anything. And for hours and hours, it's just like, we don't know. We don't know where they are. And that night, Air New Zealand had to just make a an announcement and tell families that we don't know where the plane is, but it would have run out of fuel by now. And we have to we have to assume that something terrible has happened yeah. because it's it has to be gone. And they Finally, a U.S. Navy plane that's flying as part of the search and rescue party spots the wreckage on Mount Erebus. Two full days after, or not two full days, but two days. So this happened in the morning of, um, or like around lunchtime on the 28th. In the morning of the 30th, a helicopter landed close to the crash site. Yeah. And the people there, I mean, it's it's hours and it's days after, right? And so they they get out of the helicopter and they see the crash site and they can see that there was no survivors. And they took some stuff like some maybe more immediately available human remains they take some uh like the black box the flight data recorder and the cvr they yeah. they take like you know key pieces but they can't take how much can they take on the helicopter right and they load back on and they fly and eventually bring all that stuff back to new zealand and the assessment initially is that there's just that Mount Erebus is is their gravesite, that there's just no way to go back and like recover right. everyone's bodies. And twenty-four of the passengers were Japanese. Mm. Because if there is a cool thing. Japanese people are going to be into it, right? It is yeah. cool. Yeah. And so there were 24 Japanese passengers on that flight. And Japan is not having this forget about the bodies business. Yeah. Like the government of Japan and obviously other families, and it's not like it was just that, but the government sure. of Japan like went to bat. They were like, oh no, no, not a chance yeah. that you're just going to like not do this, that you're just going to leave them there you're just going to leave everything there no way right. and so they created operation overdue which i think is definitely i mean whoever named that was also upset that <laughs> right, they had decided yeah. to to put it off or wait and that operation lasted 
until the end of December. It was so long and so arduous. And I'm going to read an account from one of the people who was a part of that. And I'm going to say this right now. It is graphic and it's pretty long. So I'm going to put a timestamp, I think, in the description. So if you don't want to hear this, you can hit like forward or whatever, like a million times, or you can check the times it's stamp. Um, but I'm going to, is that okay with you, Mariah, if of I read course. it? Of course. This is an account from uh, Jim Morgan, who was one of the men who worked at the site. The fact that we all spent about a week camped in polar tents amid the wreckage and dead bodies maintaining a 24-hour schedule says it all. We split the men in two shifts, 12 hours on, 12 off, and recovered with great effort all the human remains at the site. Many bodies were trapped under tons of fuselage and wings and much physical effort was required to dig them out and extract them. Initially, there was very little water at the site, and we had only one bowl between all of us to wash our hands in before eating. The water was black. In the first days on site, we did not wash plates and utensils after eating. We just handed them on to the next shift because we were unable to wash them. I could not eat my first meal on site because it was a meat stew. Our polar clothing became covered in black human grease, a result of burns on some of the bodies. We felt relieved when the first supply of woolen gloves arrived because ours had become saturated in human grease. However, we needed the finger movement that wool gloves afforded, i.e. writing down the details of what we saw and assigning body and grid numbers to all body parts and labeling them. All bodies and body parts were photographed in situ by the U.S. Navy photographers who worked with us. The U.S. Navy personnel helped us lift and pack bodies into bags, which was very exhausting work. Later, the school gulls were eating the bodies in front of us, causing us mental anguish as well as destroying the chances of identifying the bodies. We tried to shoo them away, but to no avail. We then threw flares to no avail. Because of this, we had to pick up all of the bodies that had been bagged and create 11 large piles of human remains around the crash site in order to bury them under snow to keep the birds off. To do this, we had to scoop up a top layer of snow over the crash site and bury them, only later, later, only later to uncover them when the weather cleared and the helos were able to get back to the, back to the site. It was immensely exhausting work. After we had almost completed the mission, we were trapped by bad weather and isolated. At that point, NZPO2 and I allowed the liquor that had survived the crash to be given out, and we had a party. Macabre, but we had to let off steam. 
We ran out of cigarettes, a catastrophe that caused all persons, civilians and police on site, to hand in their personal supplies so we could dish them out equally and spin out the supply we had. As the weather cleared, the helicopters were able to get back and we were, able, we were then able to hook the bodies in cargo nets under the helicopter and they were taken to McMurdo. This was doubly exhausting because we also had to wind down the personnel numbers to each, with each helicopter load and that left the remaining people with more work to do. It was exhausting uncovering the bodies and loading them and dangerous as debris from the crash site would be whipped up by the helicopter rotors. Risks were taken by all those involved in this work. The civilians from McDonnell Douglas, MOT, and U.S. Navy personnel were first to leave, and then the police and DSIR followed. I am proud of my service and those of my colleagues on Mount Erebus. So that's written by Jim Morgan. He was one of the people who worked on this operation. They had rotating people in and out, like groups as high as 60 people as they just tried. And they recovered, they recovered 88% of the bodies that were left there. Wow. 88. That's a lot. 80. Yeah. So I, I, I think it, is it 240 or so of the people I mean, it's so horrible, but I think about how I think about like other crashes where there's nothing to recover or people right. just don't right. ever get any of that. And again, I know for some people it doesn't matter. Some people are. I know it just doesn't matter to everybody, but like Same, this. Yeah. This gives people. If it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter. Right. If you if you yeah. do or do not get your loved ones really remains. Matters. Exactly. Exactly. And it took a, just such a huge effort yeah. and just so hard, yeah. right? Like the people, there's nobody who that's their everyday job, right? Like this right. kind of work and this kind of like really intense environment and you have to be you're on a mountain in the freezing cold and ugh, right ugh. like you don't get used to it like even if that like i don't know right. if you're a specialist in like mountain recovery or something like that like you'd i, I would imagine right. it's not something you would even get used to i mean right. that is like well, traumatic yeah. right and again, some of the people are like just McDonnell Douglas employees and some people right. are literally cops, just regular cops yeah. from New Zealand, just Kiwi cops used to cop in and now they're doing this. Right. And yeah, just like it ugh. sounds like but something the, that like re, like hearing you read that account, it sounds like. Like, the picture that I kept getting in my head was, like, prehistoric times almost. Just, like, yeah, it must have been so desolate and just tough. And, like, even just fighting with the birds, like, Ugh. Uh, yeah. Ugh. It's tough. I mean, and, I mean, none of this is... 
yeah, it's this horrible, 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 like, juxtaposition of the um, people who died here. And I assume when they left, when they, when people headed to that site to be part of that effort, right? I don't know this, but I imagine that at least for many of them, it's like this is like a good thing. It is good to bring people's bodies back to their loved ones. Yeah. That is a good thing. And there's the fact that they were people who were just killed in like a horrible instant. Right. And then... It's the juxtaposition of that, these were people, and the the horror of of like a body, right? That's something yeah. that just the again, just you're not able to like there's no showers, do you know what I mean? You can't, like, it's very hard to be clean right. or to feel clean. And the, just the the human, the natural disgust and horror that you will feel at, at you know, yeah. doing work like that. And that's, like, a very hard juxtaposition because the way that you want to treat people and the way that you want to treat things that are disgusting to you are very different, right? So you have to, like, find some way to function yeah. in the midst of that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a lot of, like, going back and forth in your mind, I would imagine. About right. how difficult it is and also how important it is, you know. Right. Right. I would imagine you that, couldn't like yeah. do something like that if you didn't think it was important. Or it would be very difficult to, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I don't blame people for whom I know we've talked about this in other contexts, but like I don't blame people for whom like a body does not have any significance. Oh, like, yeah. I don't yeah. think that that's like a it's not a failing. No. It's fine. But yeah, I think that I'm glad that in general, even I've heard lots of people say about their own bodies, like, well, once I'm dead, I'm dead. Who cares? Yeah. But and which is a fine thing to say and feel. But like it's if you I think most people understand that that is not the case. Right. For everyone. Right. And it's not like the truth. Like there's no. It's not, it's neither true nor false or like rational or irrational. It's not, Right. it's just some people feel like it's very significant and some people don't. And it's your feelings either way, yeah. you know, it's just, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. and uh, I know that there is, so this was devastating yeah. devastating for New Zealand and the investigation was extensive and ongoing and complex and we are going to I'm sorry to disappoint all you darling friends <laughs> but we are going to talk about it in uh, part two yeah or if you're confused because there's like another hour hanging off this video that you can see on the times code or whatever then it's just part two 
that's the rest of this episode. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know how it's going to go down. Yeah. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. That is really tough. I think you'll find the investigation portion really interesting, Mariah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. I think I think so. Okay. I think so. But it's. Yeah. 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 Do you, um, you would totally do a route like this though, wouldn't you? One trillion, like, like I want to do it today. Like I want to, like, let's, let's go right now. Do they still do it? Right. I don't. I mean, somebody must. (laughs) You would think so, wouldn't you? I know, I know they do. afford it, but somebody must do it. Right. They do cruises to Antarctica. Hey. Um, right. National Geographic actually does a cruise. Okay, <laughs> the National Geographic. I want to go on every single one of those National Geographic trips, but they are also like ten billion dollars. They are expensive. It is very expensive. I'm yeah. sure very lovely. Yeah, but very expensive. They are not for. They are for. Not me. Wealthy retired people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or like wealthy honeymoons or whatever. Yes. Um, oh, that'd be a cool honeymoon. Expensive, but cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I like so love the idea of going to Antarctica, but I do feel like the thing about it that appeals to me is actually the idea of doing one of the, like a stint, you know what yeah. I mean? Like people who go there for work and are there like for research. like three months or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's what appeals to me. Yeah. Like the idea of just being... There. I don't know the feeling of being like very far away mm-hmm. can be like I don't know I really like that feeling yeah. but you know I mean I, I'm gonna skip like the story but you know that I had uh you know I was very far away yeah and then had to get back very quickly yeah. and having um that was stressful yeah it can but be very stressful. Yeah. Being far away can be yeah. very, very stressful. But there is some sort to, of like, yeah, it's not even freedom. It's, it's like, I don't know, liberating in a different kind of way. It just, yeah, it, yeah I don't know. It like lets you off the hook for just a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> in a good way, like in a yeah. healing way, you know, like not in a trying to run or like just in a, I don't know. It's nice to be far away well, sometimes. Yeah, and I guess like it used to be everything used to be farther away, I guess. Is yeah. the only way I can think to yeah. say it. You know, like everything just used to take it used to you know, it used to take all spring, summer and fall yeah. to get from like Kansas City to California and now it's like three hours you know like everything used to be further away and so I guess maybe that's something maybe it is like a human thing that we just don't get to experience as often yeah for better and for worse because not everybody likes that feeling right and it doesn't always feel good right but it can feel good yeah but yeah I know I'm hoping that um I don't know if this is actually a possibility. I don't know anything about this, but I'm hoping that, like, uh, uh, what are those trains called? Like, the really fast trains? Bullet trains? Yes. Like, if we could get some bullet trains in the U.S., like, oof. 
Oh, bullet rail yeah, or bullet trains, yeah. high speed rail. Yeah, just that would be great. We are it is the official position of the podcast <laughs> that most of our problems could probably be solved by trains. Literally. <laughs> and I don't like trains personally. No. Like I don't like that is it's not my cup of tea. Right. But it is the right way to fix a lot of problems like i would take a three-hour train to buffalo yeah Yeah, you would yeah yeah i would take i think that i think that if they do high-speed rail because for whatever reason that is like a pet project right like a high-speed rail from buffalo to new york i guess through syracuse i don't know but whatever route they say like buffalo rochester syracuse and then straight down um the only thing i will say about it is if they do that it has to be inexpensive or i mean it has to be like 40 bucks like max yeah exactly because right now amtrak is more expensive than flying yeah and that is not good and it is like it's not good in a lot of different ways that causes problems that it's so costly right. and compares unfavorably to train to flying in a lot of ways but um if they even if it was just a fixed price because if it was just a fixed price yeah where if you needed to get down there like this weekend right you and could. so you could count on being able to do that quickly right for a low price yeah. then i think it would do really really well yeah yeah because there are a lot of commuters i mean when i worked at buffalo we had friday night and saturday morning had like a lot of the same people you know going to new york because they commuted every week yeah yeah but yeah it would probably hurt the airlines though it It would would most definitely hurt the airlines you know that i love aviation but I do want to destroy Delta. Yeah, so always. It is my purpose in life is to destroy, <laughs> is to punish Delta for its many crimes. Yeah, against DGS. So yeah. Um. And yeah, so cold places and trains together make me think of my <laughs> additional dream to take like the Trans Siberian Railroad, like the Trans Siberian Railroad, yeah. like take that train across. Yeah. Um, even though I like, I think everyone else watched that like vice documentary (laughs) on North Koreans working in Russia 10 years ago. And the only thing I really remember about that were the trains. Mm. Trains were a very good part of that documentary and didn't make it look great. Um, but did make it look very Siberian in a way that I want to experience yeah for sure i like i like i like the former ussr anything that is in that footprint like eastern europe yeah russia the whole thing i just like that part of the world yeah my kind of people oh do you have an antarctica or train fact today (laughs) i should uh i think that maybe that could be the fact antarctica is the biggest desert Antarctica is the biggest desert. I think I I haven't. That's probably from a Snapple can in <laughs> two thousand three. But like, I think listen, you know, I think Snapple sure, facts yeah. like they've really, they've really come down on Snapple facts to make sure that they're true. 
Because I okay, there was a Snapple fact I got one time that was like fifty percent of faculty uh, Snapple facts are false. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> the only one I remember because there were, you know, my very very small school two two sisters always had Snapple in their lunch yeah. and they would like read the facts. It was like, guys, I don't know. It was a small school. Right. This was one of the events at <laughs> lunchtime. Yeah, but one of them was like kissing for a minute burns like twenty five calories or something. Oh my god! And Snapple, it, Snapple. First of all, Snapple. Second of all, high schoolers don't need that. No. Don't say that to high schoolers. Please do not. I know that you don't exclusively sell your Snapple products to high schoolers, but like, leave everyone alone with your Snapple facts that true. aren't true. Oh my god! What is your actual fact? I'm sorry, I didn't. I made a joke. No, no, no. <laughs> um let me pull it up here it was a funny fact i saw on tiktok it was like something i forget what the actual video was about but uh they had they had mentioned this uh fact in there and i like looked it up and i looked it up and i like tried to find it i don't know maybe it is maybe it's a snapple fact but um (sighs) the only like credible source i couldn't i couldn't find any like legitimate credible source just a source that appears to be the actual law um okay so this is the fact it is illegal to run out of gas in parts of youngstown ohio like it is a misdemeanor you could be um like ticketed and given a fine if you run out of gas in these like specific streets in ohio in youngstown ohio yeah are there residential streets? I think it's, it's, I don't know what the streets actually are, but I think it's like downtown area maybe. Um, what? Yeah. And the, the law actually, it, it appears to be true. It appears to be true that you're not allowed to operate a vehicle um, without sufficient fuel enough, to yeah. drive down through the district in Youngstown, Ohio. Okay, I, Aubrey, you're the only listener whose name I know who lives in Ohio. I don't know what where is going you on live in, in Ohio. Is that, I don't know where that is in relation to Youngstown, have, but yeah. what's the deal? Is that a thing? Yeah, please, because. It seems there are, yeah. I can't, the only, like, I, there's no, I mean, this is probably the answer in and of itself, but uh, there are no, like, true sources. It's like kidssearch.com. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are weird laws. There Lots are weird, weird laws, laws, right. And it looks, it appears, I kind of got stuck down this rabbit hole because I was like, oh, that's like a cute little fact. Ha, ha, ha. Also yeah. stupid because don't give don't people, punish people for, for right, gas. like don't give people more things to pay for when they can't afford gas, but um or their tank is leaking or whatever's going on right like, there's like, a lot of things right that can none of, none of the things that can create that situation are good exactly exactly um so the, yeah that was kind of the <laughs> the rabbit hole i got stuck on but apparently the law is under codelibrary.amlegal.com so if that's a legitimate website that's where it is code library yeah it's like a code library Code library sounds like a, I don't know, like a national treasure. Yes, it does. 
SQL code <laughs> library. But, with computers. Um, I mean, we said on this show that it's the law that you need to have a spittoon yeah. at your bar yep. in Buffalo. It is. And that is as true as any Snapple yeah. fact. <laughs> like, as well-researched and true as any Snapple fact. Okay, also, Mariah, Snapple. I'm realizing fully half of the people who listen to this are not American. So, darlings, I don't think Snapple is probably an international product. Oh, I didn't Snapple God, is I love a Snapple, tea. Though. Yeah. Do you love Snapple? I love it so much, but I... Okay, so yes, sorry, we should finish that. Snapple is a tea. It's like an iced tea. It's tea. With different but flavors. It's like, yeah. But it's like juice. Yeah, it's juice. <laughs> it's it's tea it's juice. Tea. Yeah. Tea juice. As yeah. every American thing, yeah. there's a hundred gallons of sugar in it. Oh yeah. And but there's diet. You can get diet. You can if diet, you want. yeah. You can, you can, it's less sugar. You can live that way. But <laughs> the the um it is tasty. The raspberry yeah. snapple. Oh my god, the raspberry one is the best. In the glass bottle though. It has to be the glass bottle. Oh the, uh, I didn't even know that there were plastic bottles yeah, until I was they at a changed it bus and now station. they kinda suck. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Snapple if you're listening, People. please give us the glass bottles back. I don't know. Is that worse for the environment? I don't no. know. Can glass glass no worse? Right. Like I don't I don't know. No, surely not. glass is recyclable right. and like actually usable, and this, plastic is forever and not recyclable. Get this plastic out of here. No matter what anyone tells you, that's the sad fact of the day. Yeah. Like <laughs> the sad story is that oh. plastic's really not that recyclable. Right. <sighs> God. Probably a problem trains could solve. <laughs> yeah. Somehow. Somehow. Yeah. Somehow. Make trains out of plastic bottles, out of Snapple bottles. There you go. Someone's gonna do it. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're going to have to yeah. eventually. Seriously. <laughs> That's all there's going to be. Right. Just plastic. It's going to be like a, a plastic bridge from L.A. to Hawaii or whatever. 100%. Just not good. No. That'll hurt the airline industry, too. Now, won't it? <laughs> <Yes>. But <laughs> Bring, black, bring uh, back glass bottles. Yeah. Glass bottles are, you know, actually recyclable. Yeah. And... I don't totally know. I don't. I can't pretend to know everything about it. I know that cans, though, like mm. cans, are extremely recyclable. Like the Arizona way. Arizona yeah, the Arizona tea. way. Yeah, yeah, that's good to go. Arizona is another tea, tea <laughs> juice drink. <laughs> Listen, I respect but, Arizona though because they will never raise their prices. I know they won't. Like they've said, they won't. It's crazy. It's 99 cents, guys, for a big, huge, yeah. like, 32 ounce. Look up how much that is. I don't and know. I'm not going to tell you in milliliters. Right. It's like, yeah. It's been yeah. that way forever and will remain that way no matter, no matter what. And in cents. Canada, yeah. it's $1.25. But don't be, be fooled. Forever. It's not the American oh. one. Oh, I see people, what you're saying. People get upset because yeah. they're like, $1.25. They see pictures or whatever online. No, don't fall for it. Don't fall for no, it. don't fall for it. Although that is kind of a cheat on Canadians because I'm pretty sure the Canadian dollar and American dollar are like even now. I'm well, maybe not. Sure. I, have yeah. I mean, it was at not one anymore. point. It was, it was, it was yeah. right there. I think the dollar and the British pound are even right now. This mm. is too much. We're off the rails. We are off the rails. We're just having our conversation. <laughs> but we do love you guys. Yeah, we do. And, and stick around. We do <laughs> stick around. We put these conversations at the end. 
so you instead can, of the beginning yes intentionally yeah, so that you can just yeah and so people because that way you can you can choose you, can to you don't the, have to listen to this you do not yeah we like no. that you do we love that you do i want to say that this is like the dessert but i feel much more like it's the like <laughs> you had dinner yeah and you're not hungry but you're munchy yep. and you don't have any actual dessert yep. and so you're like eating like cocoa pebbles over the like handfuls of cocoa pebbles Ugh, over the sink. Yes. That's what these conversations are. Yes. Not dessert. Not dessert. But like a nice addition. Yeah. An addition. Yeah. Yeah. Got- and if you're Brian, you don't do, my husband, you don't do that. <laughs> and God bless him. I'm sure Brian does not listen to this part of the episodes. But He's sweet lad. But um, yeah. Okay. Cool. I love you. I love you. We are I'm excited going for part to two. do. Yes. Excited. Part two. It is, again, an opportunity to turn your tears into anger. And, right. uh, yeah, because there's definitely, well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. We'll talk about and it. And if, if, if you, you do our... listen this far and you have facts that you want to share on here, I will gladly share your fact. If you want to send us, send us some facts. I would also like to know if anyone else remembers the Snapple fact that was the yeah. It was, they were all the, that was kind of the thing that we realized there was like only maybe a dozen in circulation at that point. Yes. Yeah. And they were, I wish I could remember more of them. If I you know. remember what the Snapple facts were in like 2004, oh, tell us. Primo. Or if there's like a version of this in like Germany or <sighs> Poland or something, right? Like if you, if yeah. there's like a version of this where you like buy gum. Probably not gum. Gum, it might be a little American, but if you buy milk, bubbling water, I guess, <laughs> yeah. seltzer water, and uh, it's has a fact off the rails. Okay. I love you. I love you, I love Mariah. You. Oh, I will say too, I should have said this way earlier, <laughs> yeah. way, way, way earlier. Um, Green Dot Aviation and Disaster mm. Breakdown both have very good videos on this. I really like both of their videos. Um, Chloe at Disaster Breakdown, mm. I love her videos every time. Yeah. I love this one. They're all good, but definitely check them out because I definitely use them. There's also a three-hour-long documentary that has the voice of like a very stern like british man and if you like that if that's if like a documentary made in like the mid 80s that's three hours long everybody's accent is british or kiwi like if that's what you want yeah if that's your jam it is the whole thing is on youtube so okay lots of info and then you can spoil it for yourself if you want to know now those are good places to spoil the second episode for yourself so (laughs) I will not do that, I promise. Okie dokie, smokey. Yes, no, you mustn't. Mariah, you are banned. <laughs> I will banned. after. We need, like, parental parental <laughs> controls for you Just on, like, YouTube aviation login. content. Change my password. Yeah. <laughs> uh, kick you off the... <laughs> the family plan. The whatever. <laughs> family plan, yeah. Uh, I love you I love so you. much. And we love you guys. We love all of you. Yeah. You are the best. And uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. We so hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we do have an, a part two coming out. In a better world, maybe we would have put it out at the same time. 
but we live in fall, so it is not that better world. Um, so look out for the part two for uh, the Air New Zealand 901 story. Thank you so, so, so much to all of you who have reached out to us, who have been so kind, so understanding. You guys are the best. I know I say it all the time, but um, we adore you and I hope you're having a great week. Bye.